53 of 1812 Productions presents the television crossover universe on the Grand Gunal Network. Coming to you live from behind the chrome microphone of excellence, we have James Wojciech, CEO of DuPont 1812 Productions. And from elsewhere, out there in the great unknown, Ben Casson, my fellow CEO of DuPont. M.H. Norris decided that instead of coming on to talk to you lovely folks this morning, she would go to Washington, D.C. and survey all of the buildings and places of power she plans to take over and rule from when we reach our inevitable post-apocalyptic world. Indeed. So from the bronze scones of mediocrity, you just have me, Ben Casson, today. <laughs> That's the permanent thing now. <laughs> And, of course, the TVCU crew are a team of crossovers who devote way too much of their time to connecting the dots through official crossovers and Easter eggs, all in order to demonstrate a shared fictional reality that we call the television crossover universe. It's a quiet day here. Do we have anything we'd like to plug? Mm. I think I'd like to plug just a simple, sweet concept and product we could all use. Silence. It's golden. Indeed, I can't top that. So, as you remember, please learn your quiet. Be your quiet. Stay in your quiet place. Whatever you we'll be do, right back. Don't listen to podcasts. <laughs> don't take that piece of advice. Silence is golden, except for us. And we'll We're be back chrome. right after this break. Well, four of you demanded it, but I don't recall very many times where our audience actively demands someone come back on and speak more on their subject. So we're back with the Doctor Who Maven herself, Tina DeLucia, classic Doctor Who expert, convention panelist, time travel nexus staff writer, and cosplay magician. Because no lowly male can make a costume for the bubble wrap. <laughs> Last time we left off with our history of Who's early days... Barely after Susan left, and a quick jump ahead to the one and only extra special Deborah Watling. So, how have you been since our last trip through TARDIS history? Oh, oh, just wonderful. Mm, smell that sarcasm in the morning. Um, I've been all right. How have you been, James? I've been alive. So, well, yeah, I can say that too. I've been alive, I'm breathing, and that's Basically, it doesn't apply to Ben. Sorry, I'm ben. quite undead at the moment. Oh, well, you should probably see somebody about that. I don't trust quacks. So we'll just let him slowly drift from undead to dead. Now, we left off last time, if you'd like to pick up right there, with when Carol Ann Ford left the show and Susan was abandoned in the far future with one shoe. Oh, goodness gracious, yes. Because the, uh, the doctor definitely knows how to grandfather. He's the best at it. Just, oh, by far. So. Oh, yeah. Not like he'd know. ever leave his one and only granddaughter behind, promising to return, much like Ash with his Pidgeot, Pidgeot or whatever. I thought it was his Butterfree. Either way. He did that with the Butterfree, too, actually. Uh, Butterfree wanted to leave. Pidgeot was only supposed to stay in a town temporarily, and Ash promised to return for him, and he never did. Like 11 years later. 
Except in this case, it's more like 53 years later. <laughs> oh, At least John yeah. and Gillian never had to put up with this. <laughs> oh, yeah. Should I talk about them? The imaginary I think you grandchildren. Should. You should talk about right. the imaginary grandchildren. Okay. So, like any giant science fiction medium, the Doctor Who universe does not stay within the television world. It also has novels and audios and, of course, comics. Um, and the comics made around the same time as the show, just about around the same time. Um, the Doctor was given not Ian and Barbara or Susan or Vicky as his traveling companions, rather his other grandchildren. Yeah, other grandchildren, John and Jillian, who grew up with him, stayed with him while he was the second Doctor, and then at some point, you know, fricked off. Because, yeah, we're done here, Granddad. And the whole joke is that they're imaginary because they're never mentioned anywhere Which is else. Actually, canon from an Eighth Doctor comic. Yes, it is. The My Eighth gosh. Doctor has a dream, and it's it's actually kind of clever because the art style changes to the sixties art style. That he's with John and Jillian, and then he's not, and he's like, "Oh, J.K. Lulls, you weren't real ever." All of I, this to get around, I would imagine, paying any of the other actors their likeness fees. I could imagine that as well. I think that might be it. And it's really funny because it's, it just pays into the whole idea that the joke is that like the first Doctor's just collecting grandkids after Susan leaves. I mean, <laughs> I mean, Vicky, Dodo, Ben and Polly. I mean, the only one you could be like, no, it's not a grandkid, it's Steven because it's, it's Steven. So it's kind of like, well, Susan's gone. Try Time to make up some other grandchildren to fill the void in my life. Which is equally funny and sad. It's the perfect Doctor Who mix. I'm just picturing oh, yes. the Doctor in like a candy-coated house in the woods leading little John and Jill. <laughs> yes, come my grandchildren. The candy house is bigger on the inside. Oh my god. Someone get on drawing that, because I swear to God, that's exactly how this went down. Uh, anytime a doctor sees a girl under the age of 17, well, a new granddaughter for my collection. <laughs> so, you know, auxiliary grandkids, it's great. Oh, yes. The first doctor has a problem and probably needs an intervention about how many grandkids he picks up. Anyway... <laughs> After Susan is very unceremon well not unceremon yeah unceremoniously left with one shoe and a human boyfriend person who's definitely gonna die. That's not even a spoiler. I mean he's human, she's a Gallifreyan time lady person, never specified if she's a time lady actually. Fun spoiler fact. alert, humans are mortal and doomed to die. Yeah. You know, maybe the doctor I mean, should have really she thought got that one for left a- with a great speech. She did get a great speech. Um, God, I kind of want to go into the audio about what happens to Susan afterwards. Could I do that? Feel free. I mean, this okay. is basically Tina's hour of Doctor Who stuff. Oh, that's wonderful. Welcome to the discourse, children. Um, but basically, fast forward a lot of years, and Susan hasn't been able to conceive a child because she is of alien and David is not an alien. So they've adopted um, Ian Jr., Barbara Jr., and I believe it's John... John Jr.? No. It might be David Jr. 
I think it's David Jr. I think it's David John. See, we're talking about John and Jillian. They're stuck in my head. <laughs> um, but eventually, she does get to have her own kid, like, like give birth to a kid named Alex. And he's a cute kid. He's nice. Played by one of the McGann children. Fun fact. Yes, this was an Eighth Doctor audio, yeah, just for and, clarity. Um, yes, this is. Um, and he's, I believe it's, he's 2% Gallifreyan, something like that. Very low amount of Gallifreyan. They came up with the really weird thing that's not, you're expected. Oh, he's half Gallifreyan. Oh, he's half? I thought it was like less than that. I think he is less than that, even though it doesn't make sense. What are they yeah, doing? Yeah, so like, they're not sure if he could regenerate. That's the whole thing. Will he? Won't he? Well, guess it's Doctor Who and no one's allowed to be happy. Um... But basically what happens is most of Susan's children are gone, basically. And she's with David. And everyone's favorite psycho time lord, the Master, shows up. Um, and he, uh, he kills David, basically. Because he's the greatest uncle-grandfather friend to Susan ever. Uh, the Doctor and the Master's relationship is weird. So that happens, and Susan's, like, very distraught and upset, but... So then she technically, technically she kills the Master, for all intents and purposes. But we all know the Master, he has more lives than three cats, and he bounces back because regeneration cycle, what's that? But that's how Susan uh, gets, Susan gets her own TARDIS, she gets the Master's TARDIS for a little bit. Which is kind of great, because it's like, yay, she's finally off Earth, but oh, everyone you love is dead. Sorry, Susan. Not to mention with Alex, the Doctor screws up. Screws up majorly. They fi- they're finally reunited after God knows how long. And it's it's actually a really cute reunion at first. And then he... Long, long, a lot of things happen. Daleks happen. Pain happens. And he basically gets Alex killed. He gets his great-grandkid killed. Hmm. Very I, painfully, mind you. And then, well, Susan has no one, because then the Doctor kind of bounces after that. As he does, because he's not able to handle situations very well. He just... he's out. As we learned in the very slow invasion, or as I like to call it, the very slow, disappointing climax. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, at least that brought Kate Stork back from the EU pit of, that's not even canon. <laughs> and just back to Susan getting a TARDIS, if she did get a TARDIS and get her own spinoff, and it's like, oh, yay, she can finally leave Earth, and then the next 50 episodes all somehow take place on Earth. <laughs> Something like that. Machine I that just looked it up. He's, uh, Alex is 7% uh, Gallifreyan. 7%. I knew it was a stupid percent. That's so weird. I mean, that doesn't even work with the Eighth Doctor's I'm half human and always have been, you know? Because then at least he'd be 25%, but... Yeah, it doesn't even work mathematically with how you divide, like, percentages of genes when one reproduces. Like, so curious how they arrived at 7%. I don't know. Ask uh, who wrote this. Oh, I guess this one would be an earthly child, which is a wonderful audio, mind you. Very painful. It hurts me. Mark Platt wrote this. Of course he did. Of Um, course he did. Of course it's Mark Platt. 
That was my thought process. Did Mark Platt do that? That sounds like a Mark Directed Platt Directed by everyone's favorite Dalek, Nicholas Briggs. Of course. Oh, it all makes sense now. But it does. Let's move away from Susan and move on to Vicky. Yes. I, now, Vicky. Vicky Pallister. Which, the funny thing about Vicky's last name is we don't learn it until we read a book. One of the books. I don't think it was... It might have been a V&A, actually. I'm fairly certain it was. Of course. V&As, yeah. Ah, but... We'll get to those. Eventually. Never. Oh, God. <laughs> but Vicky is the cutest thing ever on this earth. Um, Vicky has an affinity for every single creature that she comes across. Like, she will want to um, adopt them all, practically. Give them a name. We're taking it on the TARDIS. No, you're not. Yes, we are. Um, but she basically she starts off as an orphan. The doc- doctor who like likes to kill off parents. I'm realizing. Really likes to make sure the companions don't have a lot of familiar t- familial ties. Which then changes after the time war to where he just wants to adopt entire families. Oh yeah, because I think when you think about it, Victoria didn't have any parents. Keegan's aunt dies. Turlos doesn't have any parents. God knows where Adjun's parents are at. They're probably just math equations brought to life. We don't know. Um, and now we have the potential for Tron Doctor Who crossover. I'm ready. I'm ready for it. I want to see Peter Capaldi in like the tight light up spandex. Oh my! She didn't even get a last name until 2004. This was after the VNA period. So this was wow. the book period. Yeah, this is the BBC book period. Wow. God. Wow, Doctor Who. It took like one year before the uh, revival. She finally got her last name. Yes. Amazing. Love it. But Vicky, aside from being the cutest thing ever, is the biggest troublemaker I've ever seen in my entire life. And of course, this makes the first Doctor quite pleased. Where Susan's very like, oh no, Grandfather, we can't do that. We, we you got to save these people, Grandfather. Vicky already has the kerosene ready. She just needs the first doctor to light them to light the f- stuff on fire. <laughs> Vicky starts off on this lovely little planet called Dido, and by lovely little planet, I mean there's nothing there but a broken spaceship, some styrofoam rocks, and a couple dudes in rubber suits. It's great. I'm kidding. No, I'm not kidding actually. Um, but. She's on this broken husk of a spaceship that uh, she was on, and there used to be a lot of crew members and stuff. There used to be, like, it was like a full-on expedition. Her, her dad, some other dudes. Then they crashed, and they are kind of like, oh, well, we'll just radio for help. We'll be out of here in, like, maybe a couple weeks. It'll be fine. And then the natives of the land were like, hey, come chill with us. We're going to make sure you have a nice dinner. And they are like, okay, all hands on deck. Except for Vicky, who was sick. And this other crew member, who was uh, injured via the crash, so his legs are, like, non-existently working. I mean, they exist, but they're, like, useless, basically. He can drag himself places. Gotcha. But alas. His name is Bennett, by the way. Not to be confused with Joan Bennett. Anywho. uh, Everyone got killed. Via this dinner thing. So it's literally just these two trying to wait for this re- rescue ship to arrive. And then, of course, the Doctor and Co-, Co show up. What's very interesting about this episode, though, mind you, is that 
Susan isn't just just doesn't just leave and we never see the after effects of it. Like the doc I like to think that the doctor actually starts off this episode of sleep, like the TARDIS lands on its own, which is the first time it's done that since like the edge of destruction. But they didn't even land in that. The TARDIS is just having a good screw around with them. Um, and then when he wants to, the doors to be open so they can step outside, he directs Susan to open them, and then he has this moment of, oh, wait, left her on Earth. Oops, forgot about that. And, of course, William Hartnell's wonderful acting. He has the most painful expression before Barbara steps in and is like, hey, I'll, you teach me how to open the doors. And he's like, oh, okay, yeah, that'll, that'll be good. So there's a granddaughter-sized hole to be filled in his life, and thankfully Vicky fits in that hole quite well. Thank you, Doctor Who writers. But, so they show up, this weird alien dude called, oh, God, Coquillian, Coquillian, it's a lot of Ks, three Qs, and really, really weird looking. Think of, like, a lizard and a porcupine on crack. Basically what this dude looks like. I thought you were going to say that's what his name looks like. That's also Sega, what the name looks like, yes. Sega's uh-huh. next reinterpretation of Sonic. <laughs> oh, God. OC, do not steal. <laughs> Watermark. But he's kind of like, what are you doing here? And Ian and Barbara are like, uh, who are you? And Ian's like, I'm going to go get the doctor, because, you know, separation always works out in these instances. Definitely. And Barbara gets thrown off a cliff, basically, Rocks fall, Ian has a panic attack because Barbara's not within a 12-foot radius of him. And the doctor's like, Chesterfield, calm your tits. Calm your Chester tits. And they go off to look for her. And uh, Barbara's okay because... One of the first doctor's lesser-known nicknames for Chesterton. (laughs) Yes. Barbara's okay because she grabbed onto a branch, which... (laughs) I'm kind of like, oh, no, no, you're dead, but... Whatever, you're Barbara, so of course you lived. Your your lovely large hair cushioned your fall. And she finds Vicky, who's like, it's okay, I'll hide you from from Bennett and Coquillian and everything will be all right because the rescue ship's coming. And she's like, uh, Vicky, I think something's up. And Vicky's like, nah, it's good. Ian, they're all reunited, it's all grand. And then it turns out, oh my God, Bennett killed all the crew members, and he was Coquillian. I'm just going to call him KQ. Or you could call, yeah, KQ the Hedgehog. Gotta go It's not actually the Sonic theme. I honestly don't know what it sounds like. Well, there's several. Yes, true. Uh, Yeah, there's gotta go fast, gotta go fast. Oh, yeah, the fastest thing alive is the best one, though. Or, um... Follow me, set me from Sonic Adventure. Yes. Yeah, City Escape. City, yeah, thank you. But, um, so then all is revealed. The, Bennett gets killed by the possible ghosts of the other planet's inhabitants. It's not that clear. It's, it's actually not, because, like, they're like, no, no, I killed you. And they're just, like, walking towards him, and he's like, ah, and the doctor's like, I'm going to let you do your thing. I'm out. Sort of a thing. And thus, they gained one Vicky. Which is very nice. It's actually, I think, the rescue's only two parts. Yes, it is only two parts. It was kind of there to fill in the void between the non-Susan, there is no Susan, 
Mrs. Susan number two. But saying that's a little bit unfair because Vicky is nothing like Susan, actually. Yeah, she's there to fill the young child character type arc to get into the scrapes and, you know, work with the doctor and have a good time. But she's much more... She's from the future. So she's very much more uh, future-minded. Like in this one episode called The Space Museum, when they are implicitly ghosts at the beginning because time is weird in other dimensions, and if I tried to explain it, it won't make any sense because it didn't make any sense in the episode. (laughs) What? Early Doctor Who with nonsensical sci-fi? You jest. No way. (laughs) Basically, the whole idea was like, they find their bodies stuffed and like on display like taxidermy. They find their future bodies on display? They find their future bodies on display, basically. They're like, well, this is a future where we have arrived, but we haven't arrived yet, so we just gotta wait for us to arrive, and everything will make sense. We gotta make sure we don't end up in those cases. And I'm like, make sense to you? Fine. That's a terrible plan. So they arrive at a future where they haven't arrived yet, and they're waiting for the future to happen when they do arrive, even though the future where they do arrive has already occurred and resulted in them being taxidermy dummies. Yep. Yes. Makes perfect sense to me. Completely logical to me. But basically they have, like, all these, like, robotic things and this space stuff, and look at this rocket, and oh my god, it's all so wonderful and cool and whatnot. And then there's a Dalek. And of course, Ian and Barbara and the Doctor do the sensible thing and cling to each other. Meanwhile, Vicky just practically skips over to it. And it's like, oh, that's a Dalek. And they're like, Vicky, it's dangerous. What are you doing? She's like, you know, I thought they'd look different from how they were shown in my history textbooks. And it's just like, well, you're very blase about these killer aliens that took over the Earth no less than like seven times. <laughs> Everyone's blasé about the Daleks in the beginning. Pretty much. They get a plunger to the face. Except Barbara. Barbara was kind of a... Kind of not okay with that. In one of the world's most famous cliffhangers, OMG plunger coming towards middle-aged woman as she's up against a wall and screams. Which actually, she had a reason to scream. I mean, hey, you know how you've just been kidnapped by your former pupil and her crazy grandfather you almost died from cavemen not like two hours ago yeah have a weird alien thing and wonder where that plunger's been she's had a stressful day but Vicky's great she feels that not only she feels the doc the doctor's very large gaping two hole two hearted hole in his hearts I don't know <laughs> but She's a little bit of a tomboy, I think. She she dresses up as a boy a lot, which is great. Especially in the Crusades, and then when she finally gets to wear a dress, she's like, oh, thank God. She accidentally poisons... She almost accidentally poisons Nero. Like, the, the, the uh, Roman Emperor Nero. Hmm. Just And she says it so casually as well. She's like, I think I've poisoned Nero. Yeah. How about that weather? Have you checked the uh, horse races today? Sounds very much like a ace follow-up to Mel, you know, the more rambunctious, tomboyish, action-oriented follow-up to the more girly, like, peaceable companion. I suppose you could say that, except Vicky's not too action-oriented. Comparing Vicky to Ace is like comparing apples and oranges, practically. 
a very explosive orange. <laughs> Mind you. With the power of a Category 9 earthquake or whatever it was. Or oh. 9 on the Richter scale. Yes. Yep. But all good things must come to an end. I said that really spooky. Ian and Barbara leave the doctor. And actually, I don't want to talk about that. That was a painful exchange. Um, we, if you fast forward a bit to the chase, I know I'm bouncing around, but you know what? Structures for losers. Um, it's uh, supposed to... There are a lot of... This is the last Dalek serial. Like... Totally. History. This is supposed to be another one. And the chase involves... The Daleks have invented time travel. Why haven't they thought of this before this point? I don't know, but they've invented time travel. And they've locked on to the TARDIS. So they're following the TARDIS through time and space. And it's kind of fun because they're popping from planet to planet in time and da-da-da-da. And it's, it really is just like a chase. It's like a whirlwind. This is actually one of the more, despite the heavy subject matter, Oh God, Daleks and extermination, and they have time travel. This is a terrible idea. It's a little. It's a lot more lighthearted, I think. The doctor breaks out his time and space visualizer, where they witness the Gettysburg Address and the Queen Queen Elizabeth, and then of course the Beatles. And they get and they get to have a little dance party in which Ian does not know how to dance at all. Kind of just flails his hand and laughs along to ticket to ride. And funnily enough, that... Uh, I'm impressed that this show managed to get the rights to a Beatles song. Yeah. They got the right to the Beatles, because it's a picture of their performance, because they performed on the BBC. And actually, that's the only version of that cl- of that whole performance that exists, because guess what the BBC did? It burned it. God. What? Okay, yeah, at least concede getting rid of Doctor Who because you hate it. But at no point are the Beatles ever not a massive money maker that you can exploit by having that footage forever. Yeah, yeah. You, you don't need a time machine to predict Beatles becoming a legend and national treasure, you know? I mean, they already kind of were, but they started burning everything in the 70s, so like... The frick. I don't want to drop an F-bop on here, so I'm very good for sensing myself. But, so yeah, there is a, uh... Actually, it's in a Beatles documentary somewhere. Where... Well, I'm hearing some weird movie. Where... Outside. Um, they're like, here's this only clip that exists from this wonderful performance at the BBC Live. Them performing Ticket to Ride. It was only survived because Doctor Who was had it in it there. Wow, so that clip survives because it happened to be in one of the episodes of Doctor Who that BBC didn't burn. Yes. And it's it's just a few few words. It's just the chorus. She's got a ticket to ride. It's just all that part. And then it fades out because the space-time visualizer is just, you know, not the most sophisticated of of machines. Oh, yeah. Not like Sonic Sunglasses, which always gets Sonic Pain, yes. Um... Then they're on another planet, and they're just rest. They're, they're Vicky and Ian are going, you know, so they're going exploring, and Barbara and the Doctor are working on their tans, and the Doctor's humming, and Barbara hears a noise, and she goes, "Doctor, Doctor, what's that terrible noise?" And the Doctor's like, "Well, that's a fine way to talk about my singing." 
And she goes, no, not, not that terrible noise, Doctor. The other terrible noise. And the <laughs> sickest burn in all of Doctor Who history was said. He didn't even know. Yeah, Barbara Slay. So it's just little things like that. That's great. Then, of course, they're they're going along and they're going to different places. One of the funny in a way that it was not intended to be parts of that episode was uh, when they're on the Mary Celeste. And for those of you who don't know what the Mary Celeste is, it was a ship, you know, bound for America, whatever the hell. And when in, it, it basically, the entire crew and all of its passengers literally just vanished. No signs of a struggle, no, like, stuff missing, like, oh, they got raided, they got kidnapped, whatever. Everyone's just gone. Ghost ship, in the most simplest of terms. How Doctor Who explains that this happened was that the Doctor and his companion showed up, and they get, you know, because they're like, ah, we got stowaways, eh? What? No, we, we just got here, we have a blue box. Ian gets hit on the head, and has the greatest hit on the head face ever. Uh, William Russell got to do a lot of Pratt falls in this. Good for yeah, him. Good for him. He also gets very seasick, which is very funny. And then the doctor and his kids are like, ah, we're, we're out of here. We're bouncing. So they leave. And of course, the Daleks are right on their tails. So the Daleks show up. And the reason why there's no one on the Mary Celeste is because the Daleks pushed everybody overboard. <laughs> or freaked everyone out so that they all fell overboard and the Daleks left. Of course. Makes perfect sense to me. They could have had them, like, disintegrate them all, including their clothes, but no, they they pushed them overboard. They're all like, ah, what is this? Jump! Leap! And it's it's really funny, because it's like, oh my god. It's uh, The only sad, like, oh part is, like, when the, uh... The only lady on there and her baby jump off, and it's like, oh... That's a bit. That's a bit raw, Doctor Who. Child yeah. murder. Yeah, that baby's dead. Okay, yeah, that baby's buried. Everyone's dead. They're in the icy Atlantic. <laughs> well, humans can survive those temperatures for at least a little minimal amount of time, but a baby wouldn't be able to even survive the impact hitting the water, probably. Nope. Okay. And then we get. They end up on the Empire State Building. Not the real Empire State Building, of course. They didn't have the budget for that, but a wonderful set reconstruction of the Empire State Building, in which we have Guy with the best New York accent ever directing people to look out at the beauty of the Empire State Building. And then, you know, he moves everybody along except for one character, Morton Dill, played by Peter Purvis. And if that name sounds familiar, that's Stephen Taylor before he was Stephen Taylor. This is the part he had on Doctor Who, and that's the part where they're like, Hey, we really like you. You want to be a companion in, like, two episodes? And he's like, <laughs> yeah, sure. And he's doing this guy. Morton Dill is a cowboy from Alabama doing the greatest Alabaman accent to ever hit the stage or screen. I so wish we had an audio clip to play right now to just oh God, demonstrate it. Was... it. That would be beautiful. You're one of those moving picture people. He's just, oh, it's so delightful. He's adorable. And Barbara asks him what year it is. He's like, it's a different year in New York? And she's like, what year was it in Alabama? He's like, oh, 66. And he's, she's like, thank you. But then they leave, and he's, like, loving it. He's laughing his ass off. And then the Daleks show up, 
Morton Dill, the only man not to fear a Dalek ever. <laughs> and also the one who made fun of a Daleks and got away without being exterminated, because the Daleks just didn't bother. They're just like, yeah, we're out. And it's really funny, at L.I. Who, when, we, when Peter Purvis mentioned Morton Dill, he's like, that accent was terrible, but I don't care. <laughs> Peter Purvis has no F's to give. None. He's run out. I mean, He's... if Dick Van Dyke can absolutely destroy a British accent in Mary Poppins, I think the Brits have got a few freebies for making fun of our various accents. I mean, yeah. It, I didn't even think it was that bad. Then again, I haven't been to Alabama, so like maybe there was like one guy who called in from Alabama being like, that's not how we sound, that's offensive. I don't know. I think the one weird. Who fan, the one, one classic Who fan in all of Alabama. Who somehow was watching the show in 1965. Yes. <laughs> somehow, some way, they made it happen. But long story short, they find Stephen Tyler. I almost said Stephen Tyler. Yes, they found Stephen Tyler, lead singer. Oh, <laughs> wow. They really had a huge budget for this. First the Beatles, now Stephen Tyler. Before Aerosmith was a thing. But, um, so Stephen Taylor is the space pilot who's been trapped on the planet of Mechanus for quite a, an indefinite period of time, and he's got a beard and a stuffed panda, and I think I talked about him a little bit last time, so I won't harp her too long, but he was there basically to take over the action man role that Ian and Barbara were leaving behind because William Hartnell couldn't do all the cool hoo-ah as he was a 56-year-old man by this point, and that was the, jo- the job of the doctor. The, yes. job, the job of the doctor was just to be smart and clever and what have you. Um, he's a precious cinnamon roll, too good for this world, too pure. Um, he Stephen doesn't get a break, which is sad, because not only does he have to deal with the first two companion deaths, in, in the same serial, mind you. The man who had a stuffed panda who ran into a bil- burning building to save stuffed said stuffed panda. Bless him. Had to deal with um, Katarina, who was a companion for just a short amount of time. Uh, well, after the Mythmakers and Vicky left in a very yeah, sad way. I guess I can talk about Vicky leaving before I talk about Dalek's Master Plan. Shoot. Time, what are you? Um, Vicky falls in love with the aforementioned Greek self. James, you say it. What am I trying to say? Not Paris, but... France? In Greek mythology, there's Credessa, and there's Troy... Thank you. You're welcome. My English degree has finally been useful. (laughs) I can't pronounce things. I also have a slight mouth lispy thing, so that also doesn't help me when it comes to certain words. It likes to go off to the side. She falls in love with him, and Stephen's a little bit like, hey, I almost died, and you've just been ogling this dude. What, What up? And she's like, 
I think I'm gonna stay with him, and he's like, okay, and then she has a, her goodbye, I think, we don't have it, but we have a very shaky clip of her walking out of the TARDIS. That's it. Yes, that's and it. And she says, goodbye TARDIS, goodbye Doctor, and apparently she hugs the TARDIS. <laughs> Which is her equal, equal parts cute and also sad, and the Doctor loses yet another grandkid, but then he kind of gains one back, because they have Katarina, Greek handmaiden. But she doesn't last long, because no. they land in the middle of basically war, and uh, she gets sucked out of an airlock. Now, what's sad about this, and keep in mind, Steven and the doctor are watching this happen. Some guy's got her basically, like, by the throat. He's, like, hanging on to her, like, using her as a hostage, because he wants to go back to the planet Kimball. And not, not the Brigadier... Brett Vaughn, played by Nicholas Courtney, the not Brigadier. He's like, nope, we're not doing that. And Steven's like, he's gonna kill her, we're going back. And, and he's like, nope. And there are two buttons on this airlock. There's um, the open the door back into the spaceship button, or the open the airlock door into the space button. And what's tragic about Katarina's death is that you don't know if she generally was trying to save her friends by getting rid of the psychopath and sacrificing herself. Or, or just trying she to... generally didn't know what the buttons did. <laughs> she may have just been like, oh, this is really scary, so I'm just going to go back inside where it's safe. Oh, wait, I'm in space. Wait, what is space? I'm from ancient Greek. And dead. Yeah, and part of this survives, not all of it, because they played it on an episode of Blue Peter. Which, ironically, where, where Peter Purpose was hosting. <laughs> uh, which is very kind of fun. Um, and he has he screams her name and testament to Peter's acting. It's quite it's quite painful to listen to because he sounds like desperate and upset. He loses Katarina and then he gains Sarah Kingdom for the rest of the episode and some big fi- big finish audios. Who is yes. the state security service badass? Beat up a police station to prove that she was good enough to be in said police station. Love of My Life, played by Gene Marsh. Gene Marsh, formerly married to John Pertwee, in fact. I did not know that. They, yeah, they were married for a little bit. Huh. Uh, yeah. And then, I think it was... Into the, I think it was mostly in the 50s. Maybe a little bit in the 60s. I'll have to look that up. But, she is the epitome of badass. Oh, 1955 to 1960. And I don't think she was married after. Not just look like it. But uh, she's pretty amazing. She shoots her own brother because she thinks it's the right thing to do. And when she finds out it's it's not it wasn't the right thing to do, she kind of has. That's kind of when she joins the doctor and has this epiphany of like what side she's really fighting for, and it's it's wonderfully played out. But unfortunately for her, um, she did. Jean Marsh was never offered a companion contract at all. Oh dear. Which I I learned from Peter actually at Li Who because he's like I thought we Jean was going to stay on, but then she told me. Then I found out later that she, he wasn't even offered a thing. So oh well. Stephen went through a lot of companions. <laughs> Poor Peter. Yeah. No wonder the audios decide he had PTSD. 
Did yeah. anyone else survive so many dying companions? Yeah. I don't... It's eight. Just eight. Yeah, that's true. Eight? I don't think... How many companions with eight have lived? Well... What is it, like two? Three? Maybe. I mean, do you even count Charlie as living? I, I don't. I, I don't at all, actually. Well, back to the mortality thing. I mean, technically, all the doctors somehow have to see their companions die. Wonderful to say. Thank you for that. Now I feel Yeah, terrible. I was going to say, depressing note. Just thinking Quite of the... Depressing uh, note. <laughs> just thinking of the uh, uh, tenant thing where towards the end he's like, I'm going to get my good day or whatever, and he basically saved a bunch of his former companions from when supposedly they were supposed to die, so you gotta imagine that all the doctors are keeping an eye on their former companions and right up until the end. Yes, well, Sarah goes out and, oh, a terrible way, a very terrible way. Basically, they got this thing called the Time Destructor. Can't let the Daleks have this thing, because if not, we're all screwed. Doctor's got it. And he's like, I'm going to turn it on. It, it, it won't affect me. We'll be fine. And Sarah Kingdom's like, oh, hell no. And she goes out after him. St Steven's in the TARDIS. It doesn't even see her walk out, really. Doctor turns on the Time Destructor. He's fine because he's not human. Sarah Kingdom is not fine, and it's a shame that this is missing, because this must have been some awesome special effects, because Sarah Kingdom, before our eyes, ages to death. Oh, wow. She literally turns gray and old and wrinkled, and then she turns to dust. She falls to the ground and turns to dust. And all that's left of her is her uniform blowing by in the sand of this planet. Oh. That's, that's it cool. is the most effed up way to go. I think, out of all the companion deaths we got, in my yeah. personal opinion. Because you don't hear, you don't, I don't know if you hear her, you kind of, you see the pain. In the still shots that we have of this, she's in agony, and it's the most terrible thing. And then when Steven realizes what, ha what happens, what does he see? He sees the doctor on the ground, fine, and then all he sees is the uniform. And he did. He's like, I didn't even say goodbye. I didn't even see her go out. I could. I couldn't have. I could have stopped her. Why didn't I see? And it's like yet another death to add on to the mix. Stephen has to deal with what I like to call the dark era of the first Doctor era because Doctor Who, mind you, was supposed to be a family show. It's supposed to be educational for the kids. We're going to have time and space and history, and it's going to be great. But at some point, when after Verity left. Not right after Verity left, but when they got one of the new producers. The one that, uh... Who didn't want William Hartnell to be the Doctor anymore. Whose name I'm gonna just gonna call him he who should not be named, because I really don't like this guy. Well, just look up Doctor Who directors if you want to know who he is. He's just, he just pits a bit sour taste in my mouth. Almost as sour a taste as Deborah Watling's first husband. Which is saying something. Which is saying something. James knows what I'm talking about. What is the thing with Deborah Watling's first husband? Oh, God. Extremely dark and probably not worth going into at the moment. He's I, just, I'll tell you later if you want. But he's he's a bit of... He's like... He, he made her do something, and uh, it was bad. I'll just leave it at that. You think that sums okay. it up, James? Yeah. Um, 
So Doctor Who got really, really dark at that point. Like, because he first... Do- but Doctor Who was always dark. There was always a body count at some point. Heavy fiends, it didn't play down to the audience. It was always played straight, and that's one of the cool things about Doctor Who. But the amount of death was not... O- was freaking William Hartnell out, actually. He made a point to be like, this is... This isn't what I signed up for. This isn't what the show should be. Which obviously didn't make the people running it at the time very happy. Because then after you get the Daleks' master plan, you've got the massacre of St. Bartholomew's Eve. And just by that title, you're not going into sunshine and rainbows. It's basically the whole thing between the Catholics and the Protestants, you know, in France. Huguenots, all that good stuff. Right before St. Bartholomew's Eve... When all these people are slaughtered, just bloody, bloody day, and it's they arrive just before this. Now, this is episode's missing, and a few good things about it is that when asked what episode he'd like to be like to see in color, Peter Purvis said it was this episode because the costumes are cool, and we get to see William Hartnell in a dual role, playing not only himself but also this. This Abbott dude who's just a bad guy, and there's a lot of confusion because Stephen's like, Doctor, you wait, no, you're not the, d- no, you're pretending to be him now. I'm so out of the loop. But he um, d- uh, befriends this little girl, not little girl, young girl named Anne, and he he they kind of have like a little friendship thing going. He she helps her, he help, she helps her, she helps him. And, um, she over- the reason why she's in danger is because she heard part of this conspiracy against the Huguenots, and he's like, well, I'm gonna help you out. And the only problem is that she's probably gonna die. Because this massacre's gonna happen, and the doctor wouldn't, wouldn't save her, basically. He's like, we gotta let history run its course. And this is the point where Steven says, I'm done. He... He leaves for a little bit. He gets off the target. He's like, I'm so sick of this death and watching everyone I know die and you just not caring, basically. You left and to die. I can't, I can't do this. So he just walks. The TARDIS lands, he walks right out. And we get the best speech of all time, in my opinion, which is now when Doctor's saying that all everyone he loves is gone, basically. Everyone's left him. No one understands why he's doing what he's doing and he's all alone. And it's... It's a shame that it's missing, because it is William Hartnell at his finest, and just hearing his voice is enough to bring a person to tears. Or maybe just me to tears. But the first time I listened to it, I did, I did cry. And it, it does take a lot to make me cry, mind you. Though I will admit that every time I watch an adventure in space and time, and, and uh, David Bradley says, I don't want to go, I burst into tears. And I've seen that movie like 54 times. Every time. I'm not sure what that tells you about me. It's pathetic. But Stephen eventually does come back, and we get Dodo, Chaplet, Chap, Chaplet, I can't pronounce things, who literally is running away from her aunt, so she just ducks, ducks in the TARDIS, and the doctor's like, thank you, grandchild gods, for gifting me with a granddaughter in my time of need. <laughs> Basically. And um, so she's like, the funny thing about Dodo is she is bubbly. She ha- is a fashion inspiration and also disaster. She raids the um, uh, 
TARDIS wardrobe closet puts on the most silliest things, but she loves it. And she has a disappearing northern accent. She starts off... Jacqueline, her actor, the actress playing her, starts off with this, this northern accent, and it's very distinct. Like, ah, yeah, there's Dodo. And then at some point, the higher-ups are like, nope, and she had to change the way she sounded. So if you're ever watching all the way through, watch for Dodo in the case of the disappearing northern accent. It's interesting okay. that they, the higher-ups saw fit to remove it, because I remember reading how Christopher Eccleston chose to use a northern accent, because apparently there's some stigma against those accents, and yeah. how they're not associated with intelligence. So he's like, yes, I want to break down that was, stigma. I was actually just talking about this the other day. With, uh, not Harry, with a friend of mine who's been to, uh, been to England a few times for school. And she's saying, how, like, oh yeah, the sc- we have a camp, my school has a campus in England. She says, like, oh yeah, you could technically say we're in the north, and the- someone there's like, please say that we're in the south. And how, like, there was a professor there who was from the north, but was saying all this really cool, intelligent stuff, but everyone was snickering because they're from the north. Wow. But that's an uncommon thing in Who, actually. Um, if you ever really listen to these actors talk, not well, they're well even acting. They sound a bit different because they were told they were, actors were told to use like the proper, you know, like fancy Londony accent. Because really, if they were t- if they chose to use their natural accents, like where they were from. Um, the Ian and Barbara would have like probably Burmy accents, and uh, the Doctor would sound like a working class Londoner and stuff like that. Fun fact. So it was more of like an actor thing to sound more intelligent on screen. Okay. Interesting. I mean, here in America, we just have the general stereotype that oh, if you're British or you sound British, then you sound smart, but. Over there, they've got their own specific smart British version. Which I guess happened to us. Like, you hear someone from the South. Oh dear. Well, I don't think that, but people do. Yeah, that's especially interesting because the Southern accent is most closely tied to, like, the British accent. Like, that's like the two have the most similarities. Where Northern accent is the one that's most different from it. All right, and this is where I'm going to put a pause until next time you come on, our dear, dear Tina. I got further. You got farther. About how many more companions are left? In the first Doctor era, Ben and Polly. Okay, next time we'll finally reach the second Doctor. Probably. Fingers crossed. Maybe. I imagine you actually still have quite a bit more to say about Stephen, though. Look... I have a lot of feelings about Steven. He gets a lot, of, a lot of stuff happens to him in the Big Finish stuff. His daughter dies. He's get his legs almost shot off by rocket men. Look, they can't cut this man a break. Something about Big Finish and like putting their companion, the classic companions, through the frickin' ringer is just like I don't know a fetish for them. All right. On that note, we'll be back after the break. us next week for a Christmas reunion. You'll see it when you see it. Before we end, I want to thank our sponsor, the Celestial Intervention Agency, for forgetting for forever. 
A special thanks to Robert E. Ronsky Jr. for starting us on this journey, as well as the Tiny White and the Deadites for our show's theme, Leaf on a Stream. Thanks to all listened, you make this possible. Remember to subscribe and rate our show on iTunes. It makes all the difference. And as always, everything happens somewhere. Good night.